You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. Well, good evening and welcome to Revolution tonight. I'm thankful to be here. Uh, Steve said, for those of you that don't, I know I've been here a couple of times, but maybe if you weren't here, my name is Robbie Day. I'm the pastor at a church in Piketon uh, called Grace Brethren Chapel. We actually just had uh, Pastor David up last week. We are doing, as you guys have done the last two years, a five sola sermon, right, or a series right now. So he was up last week, and he preached on sola fide. And I'm uh, just thankful. I told David and, and Stephen back there downstairs how thankful I am um, that we've, we've developed this relationship over the last couple of years. I'm very thankful for the ministry of Revolution in Portsmouth. I'm thankful that I have um, those brothers. I know I could have talked to, to Day, Pastor David Dowdy um, the most, but I could call on any of those three at any time, and, and they would be there to help me out. So I just appreciate the, the relationship we've built with you guys over the last few years. Uh, tonight, I have been tasked with preaching on the doctrine of irresistible grace, and I have a pretty short introduction. Uh, so what I'll do is um, I'm going to read the word. We're going to be looking at John 6 this mor- or this evening. Um, I'm used to the mornings, <laughs> preaching in the morning, uh, but we're going to be looking at John chapter 6, and we'll kind of jump around. We're going to look at three verses, verses 44 through 46, but we're really going to hone in on verse 44 and then look at several verses around that chapter as well as some other texts as well. So in John chapter 6, verses 44 through 46, God's word says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, God, we are thankful this evening. God, that you have chosen to redeem a people. God, that none of us deserve your grace. But because of the great love with which you loved us, even while we were still yet sinners, you sent Christ to die for us. God, we are thankful for your spirit who enters our heart and changes us, regenerates us, and makes us new so that we may believe the gospel. And we ask tonight, Father, by the power of your spirit, that you would help us to understand this truth and this important doctrine of your irresistible and effectual grace. This is all in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen. Well, as I said, what we're doing tonight is, and maybe you're just joining for the first time in the last few weeks, or or you've missed a week or two, uh, we are continuing a sermon series on uh, the five doctrines of grace, or the five points of Calvinism, uh, if you will, using that acrostic tulip, uh, total depravity, uh, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, as we'll talk about tonight, and then next week you'll hear about the perseverance of the saints. And I'm not going to go into a lot of uh, the history. I know you've already heard that. I actually listened to, to David's sermon on the first, the first week. So you've heard a lot of that history. So I won't go into a lot of that. But what we will do tonight is we will set some context because I think that's important for us to back up a little bit in order to, to rightly understand this doctrine that we're looking at tonight. So what I'm going to do first, and, and again, if you've, you've been here when I've been here before, uh, what I always like to do, we do this every week at our church, is we always have a truth taught. 
that one point, that one thing, that if you, you walk away with nothing else tonight, this is what we need to walk away with. And so tonight's truth taught is this. It says, all of the elect, that is those the Lord has predestined to salvation, will be effectually called, regenerated, and saved by God. So all of the elect, that is those who have been predestined to salvation, will be effectually called, regenerated, and saved by God. So before the foundations of the earth, God determined that a people would be saved. And he does not merely make an offer to these people. He does not come to some kind of mutual agreement. He doesn't meet them somewhere and at some kind of halfway point in the middle. But the Lord determined in eternity past to save a particular people, his people. And he's done everything necessary to successfully and efficaciously draw this group of people to himself. The London Baptist Confession says it like this. It says, those whom God hath predestined unto life, he is pleased in his appointed and accepted time, effectually to call by his word and spirit out of that state of sin and death in which they are by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ, enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God, taking away their heart of stone and giving unto them a heart of flesh renewing their wills, and by his almighty power, determining them to that which is good, and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ. Yet so as they come most freely, being made willing by his grace. And so ultimately what we're addressing in this doctrine of, of irresistible grace, which is a term I think is, is actually a misnomer, but we'll, we'll come back to that a little later. What we're, what we're addressing in this doctrine is, is how the Lord draws the elect to himself. How the Lord brings his chosen people from their fallen state of sin and condemnation to a state of repentance and salvation. With this doctrine will come other questions. Questions like what role do we play in this process and what does it mean for the Lord to draw the elect? And, and do we have a choice to resist God's grace? And do we make a decision to believe in Christ on our own by our own so-called free will? And these are all some of the questions we'll encounter and we'll, we'll, we'll seek to answer as we approach this important doctrine within Reformed and Biblical theology tonight. But in order to, again, as I said, to rightly approach this doctrine, we need to back up and set some context by covering some of the ground that's already been covered in this series. Of course, not to the same degree, but, but we need to understand these truths, or we need to have an understanding that these truths are essential to establishing a proper understanding of, of this doctrine of irresistible grace. And the first of this being man's depravity. And we see this truth when we look at the first verse of today's text. As we look at this text in John chapter 6, Jesus has just explained to his followers that he is the bread of life. He is the spiritual manna sent from heaven to satisfy our spiritual hunger, to fill the spiritual void between God and man that's been created by sin. And, and upon teaching this truth, Jesus was challenged by his Jewish followers, as it was their understanding that they were saved simply because they were Jewish. And Jesus is saying no. Jesus is saying you are only saved if you have been drawn by the Father, if you have been chosen and given to me by the Father. And it's because of this teaching that many of his followers would eventually retort and say this is a hard saying. And they would eventually turn back and would no longer follow him. 
But at the root of the, the Jewish misunderstanding in this text is that they did not understand that their natural they did not understand their natural state of depravity. They were grumbling because they assumed that because they were naturally born Jews, they were by default chosen by God unto salvation. And this is what Jesus is addressing here in John 6. We're going to back up and read from verse 41 here for just a second, actually. He says, So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is it not this Jesus? Is not this Jesus the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And again, to set context here, what Jesus is saying here is an articulation of the doctrine of total depravity. In essence, the human heart is so affected by sin that it is incapable of loving God apart from God's work of regeneration, regardless of who you are or where you're from. And it's important to know that, that when Jesus says, no one can come to me, he's using a, a Greek word here, dunamē, which means to be able. So in other words, what Jesus is saying here is, no one is able, no one has the ability to come to me. And this is a definitive statement that no person regardless of race, even the Jews, regardless of gender or culture or background or creed, has the ability to come to Christ, not unless God acts to draw them to himself. The Apostle Paul clearly artic articulates this truth as well, and he uses the exact same word in consecutive sentences in Romans 7, or 8, 7 and 8. In those two verses, he says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It hates God, there is enmity between the mind of the flesh, the mind that is set on the flesh, and God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Duname. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. They do not have the ability to submit to God's law. They do not have the ability to please God. Furthermore, Paul would tell us in Ephesians 2 that those in the flesh have no hope and are without God in the world. But not only does the human heart not have the ability to keep God's law or do anything to please God for that matter, but the sinner also acts in direct opposition to God and actively resists God. Paul again in Ephesians 2 in the first three verses, he more firmly establishes the truth of our helplessness when he says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, four quick things about this passage before we move on. First, Paul says that this is the state that we, were, we are in when we are in the flesh. This is the same state of opposition to God he used to describe our inability to please him in Romans 8 that we saw just a moment ago. Secondly, Paul establishes that we are born into this state of sin and condemnation. He says we are by nature children of wrath. And so the Jews were mistaken to believe that one's nationality, their culture, or their family automatically numbers them among the elect because they too were by nature children of wrath. 
Thirdly, Paul reiterates our inability to, to, to change this position, to change this state of separation and alienation from God as he says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And we know that dead people cannot give themselves new life. Therefore, we are unable to give new spiritual life. And finally, he points out that we are not only separated, but we are active in our resistance to God. And that in this state of flesh, he says, we were following the course of this world. We were following the prince of the power of the air. We were actively striving to conform ourselves to the course of the world, to conform ourselves to the way of Satan himself, instead of conforming ourselves to the image of God. And so what Jesus is, is ultimately saying is that we are born into this state of the flesh in which we are blinded to the truth of the gospel and have absolutely no power to do anything about it in and of ourselves. However, this is where we begin to see the role of God's irresistible or his effectual grace in our salvation. But again, before we fully move into our dissection of this doctrine, we need to reestablish one more element of the doctrines of grace which is the, div the divine prerogative of a limited atonement, or also maybe you know it as a particular redemption. So in short, I'm sure last week you heard it, that God, before the foundations of the earth, determined to save an elect or a particular group of people. And this was not because of anything that that elect group of people have done. It's not because of anything they've done to obligate, to compel God, or to convince him to do so, but rather he did so out of his sovereign grace. Again, to, to, to look at the, to cite the London Baptist Confession, it reiterates in the second paragraph of the 10th chapter. This effectual call of God's free and special grace alone, not from anything at all foreseen in man, nor from any power or agency in the creature, being wholly passive therein, being dead in sins and trespasses, until being quickened and renewed by the Holy Spirit. And again, this is what Jesus is alluding to back in verse 44 when he says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And the word draw here in this, in this verse, it's not meaning some kind of enticement. It's not talking about some sort of wishful wooing, like a, a carrot on a string that is often reduced to in, in Arminian camps. But, but this word, helko, it, it, it means to impel by an inward power, and is even used in some places of Scripture to mean to drag off. Now, we're not saying that God drags us to himself kicking and screaming, but this is to say that this word conveys that this drawing to God is the result of an outside agent, namely the Holy Spirit, acting to inwardly impel or cause a change in the heart of the sinner, who is altogether passive in this process, and that this will lead to God's intended purpose of salvation for the sinner. This process is the process Paul refers to as regeneration, or Jesus, what he calls the rebirth, as he's explaining it to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And we'll get back to this shortly, but for now, we need to know that, that it is only in the hearts of the elect that the Holy Spirit causes this to take place. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one can come to God. No one can please God. No one can rightly love God. And no one can, can certainly, no one can choose God apart from this monergistic work of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of those he's determined to draw.
And so having relayed this, this important groundwork, this brings us then to the heart of the doctrine of irresistible grace or effectual grace, as you've heard me call it. Because as I said earlier, I believe the name of this doctrine is, is something of a misnomer um, because it can be misleading. Not because I disagree with it, but because it's, it's misleading. Irresistible grace gives the impression that one can resist the grace of God when in fact we've just established that the Bible says that's exactly what our, enti- our entire existence consists of prior to our salvation. We are set against God and we resist his general outward call that all humanity should believe in him. This is why I think, and this is not my own term, but, but effectual grace is a much more appropriate term. Because what this doctrine is saying, what the doctrine of effectual grace is saying is that when God determines to act and the Holy Spirit moves upon the heart of an unrepentant, hardened heart, his work and his actions are completely effectual. They are holy and certainly going to accomplish all that he intends to accomplish. Now, I want to repeat that, that sentence. The doctrine of effectual grace is saying that when God determines to act and the Holy Spirit moves upon the heart of an unrepentant, hardened heart, his work and actions are completely effectual. They accomplish everything that he intends to accomplish. And so this is to say that when, when God, in his appointed time, determines to draw his elect to himself, he does so effectually by renewing their heart, by regenerating the heart of the sinner and changing that heart so that it no longer despises or is set against God, but is now fully inclined and empowered to freely love him. This is what the new birth or the regeneration of John 3 is. It's the how of effectual grace. Again, there is this general call to belief. This is the outward pronouncement of the gospel that is made to the entire world. But we know that not all who hear the gospel actually believe the gospel. They are, and that's because they are spiritually dead. They're in the flesh and they have a hardened heart. And they have been blinded to the truth. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, he said, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. However, when when God calls, when he effectually calls a sinner to himself, it it is an inward call in which the Lord's Spirit acts to change that heart at his appointed time to gift the sinner with a new heart with a repentant heart, just as we were promised in Ezekiel 36, I will give you a new heart. They are born again by the power of God's Spirit working inwardly within them. And this process of regeneration is completely necessary for salvation. Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3, 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot, dunamé, he does not have the ability to see the kingdom of God. He cannot enter the kingdom of heaven without being born again, without having his heart regenerated. He goes on in verses 7 and 8. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So there there, there are two things here that I want you to see about what Jesus says. Two things Jesus makes clear about being born again or this regeneration of the heart. First, it's, is, is that it's completely necessary that one be born again in order to be saved. We've already made that point. 
One cannot enter the kingdom of God apart from the work of the Spirit to regenerate the sinner's heart. But second, this, this rebirth is something that is accomplished by the Spirit. When and where the Spirit determines to do so. It's not something that we can manipulate. It's not something that we can coerce. It's not something that we can determine on our own, but it is determined by God's sovereign appointment. The Spirit is not dependent on human cooperation to carry out the task of regenerating the heart. And so to summarize what we've established thus far from the Scriptures, prayerfully, is this. All of humanity is spiritually dead from birth and can do nothing to save or redeem oneself from the wrath of God. God is determined to redeem and save a particular people, the elect, to himself. The elect are only saved by being born again. They must be regenerated and given a new repentant heart by the Spirit of God in order to be saved. And finally, this work of regeneration is done entirely by the work of the Holy Spirit at God's appointed time. And so it's here that that we need to pause and talk about what specifically happens in the heart. Because this is where much of the disagreement about irresistible grace stems. You heard last week or, or a couple weeks ago, you heard that the Arminian remonstrance refuted limited or particular atonement because they believe that all sinners have the ability in and of themselves to freely choose God by their own volition. And this is largely due to the fact that they disagreed with the idea of, of effectual or, or irresistible grace and argued for what they would call prevenient grace. And this is still central to Arminian doctrine uh, today, particularly those in the Wesleyan and the Free Will Baptist camps and even in Roman Catholic theology. The argument for prevenient grace essentially says that that God's grace precedes um, the decision of the sinner to freely choose God. But that God does not effectually cause, and nor does he even enable the sinner to choose him, but only brings the sinner to a certain point of decision. And the Arminian camp would argue that, that God will, at some point in the life of sinners, begin to work on, you may recognize that language, work on the sinner's heart and bring them to this decision point, but that it is as far as God will take them or bring them. God at that point, uh, God, or, um, is only responsibility, at that point it's the responsibility of the sinner to choose God apart from God's work because he is fully capable of doing so. And furthermore, the Arminian would argue that, that repentance and faith, or our conversion, follows this prevenient grace, but precedes our regeneration. So they would argue that, that one makes a decision for Christ while we are still in the flesh. When, that, that, that then we are converted by repenting and placing faith in Christ. And then regeneration happens. Then we are regenerated from living in the flesh to living in the spirit. But again, this position asserts that the atonement is unlimited and that all sinners have the ability to choose by, this, by their own free will to repent and place trust in Christ prior to receiving the new birth while still spiritually dead when Paul says that we are actually without hope. This position is completely contrary to everything we've already seen in the scriptures today and over the last three weeks. We've seen from the scriptures that humanity is born into a separation from God. 
with an enmity or a hatred for God in our heart. We've seen that we are not able to overcome this state of depravity, where we are controlled by our fleshly passions and desires. And we've seen that in the flesh, humanity is spiritually dead. That we are unable to give ourselves new life. We are unable to choose, love, obey, or do anything that is pleasing to God. Our ability to choose God comes only after the new birth whereby we are gifted by God's effectual grace a new heart that has new desires and new inclinations. This regenerate heart is is no longer set against God. It is no longer controlled by the passions of our flesh. It is no longer held in bondage or slavery to sin. Why? Because Christ died and rose to conquer sin. Christ overcame our sin and his atonement on the cross. He took the penalty of our sins upon himself and endured death, which is the consequence of sin, in our place. But because he was without sin, because he was completely righteous and holy, death couldn't contain him. And in his resurrection, he conquered the power of sin over the redeemed, over all who are in him. And so when we are given this this new heart that is no longer in the flesh but in Christ, we have a redeemed heart that is not bound by sin because sin has been conquered. We couldn't do that on our own. We couldn't pay for it because we we didn't have an acceptable payment of perfect righteousness to offer. We couldn't earn it. We couldn't merit it. We couldn't negotiate it. It was purchased by the righteous blood of Jesus Christ for all that the Father has given him. And of them, he says, he will lose none. Back here in in, in John chapter 6, we're going to back up a few verses to verse 35. It says, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus accomplished everything he intended to accomplish. He accomplished everything that the Father sent him to accomplish, including redeeming all of God's elect. All of the redeemed, Christ purchased their salvation with his blood. And on the last day, they will be raised with him. We did not make a decision to repent or place faith in Christ without this effectual grace of God working within us to give us a new and changed heart that is no longer bound by sin, but is now freed to love the Lord for what he has accomplished for us. And God says that he will lose none of them. And this is where the issue of free will comes into play. Because I'm sure that's the, I know that's a question 
Um, it may be a new question for you, maybe something you've wrestled with for a long time, but, but what about free will and this idea of, of irresistible grace? You may be asking the question, you mean to tell me that I don't make my own decisions? Is this to say that we live in some sort of deterministic world where all things are controlled like, are, like puppets? And, and these are fair questions. These aren't bad questions. These are common questions that I think everyone struggles with or has to think through. But to be clear, Reformed theology does not argue against the human ability to freely act according to one's will. In fact, it affirms just that. However, what, what Reformed theology rejects is the idea of what's called libertarian free will. The idea that, that the decisions of our will are not influenced by anything but that they're made freely and independently of all external and even internal influences. And the argument here is that if our decisions are caused by anything, even our own desires, the decisions are no longer free choice. And so the truly free will, according to this position, has the ability to make any decision completely free of any kind of causes or influences, even if it is contrary to our own nature or our own desires. However, we've already seen that, that this is not so when it comes to choosing to please God. If we are dead in sin, we can do nothing to please God. We simply cannot choose to do so. And, and this is a sticking point for so many people because we don't like the idea of not being in control. But I think R.C. Sproul offers a, a, a really good illustration to help us see that we never actually make choices that are truly free. At least not in the libertarian sense of, of, of freedom anyway. Our choices are always influenced by experiences and inclinations and desires. In this illustration, he, he, he refers to um, the Disney Alice in Wonderland, where Alice is walking down the road, and she comes to a fork in the road, and she basically has two choices before her, and the Cheshire Cat is sitting there smiling at her like, you don't really know what you're going to do right now. And he uses this situation to kind of to, to think through how we make decisions. At first glance, we look at this uh, this, this situation with Alice, there are two widely apparent options for her. She can either take the fork on the right or she can take the fork on the left. But after further thought, you've maybe probably already even realized, she can also turn around and go back the way she came from. But in the, in, in the idea of libertarian free will, where there is nothing else that is informing or influencing our decisions, there are no desires, there is no experience that, that's causing us to make the decision that we make, there's actually a fourth option. And this is what we do. If we were truly free in that sense and nothing informed our decisions, we would all be stuck in this fourth option, which is to stand in that spot for all of eternity. Because nothing is influencing us to do anything else. And so this is what Sproul was saying. If, if libertarian free will was true, we would never make decisions because there's nothing to help us, inform us, influence us in our, in our decision making. Now what the scriptures tell us is that in the flesh, when we are spiritually dead, our desires and passions are bound. They are held captive. And we are free to choose anything we want or desire, but that those desires are limited to the passions of the flesh. We will not please God, Paul says. Indeed, we cannot because we are in bondage to our sin. This is what 18th, the 18th century, century theologian Jonathan Edwards was referring to 
in his treatise on the freedom of the will, or Martin Luther in his book, The Bondage of the Will. Those are two of the most important pieces of literature ever written on this topic, save for the scriptures themselves. That, that in the flesh, we can truly or we can freely choose our greatest desires, but our greatest desires and inclinations absolutely do not include choosing or pleasing God because they are held captive. They are in bondage. But after we've received a new heart, after we've been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, the shackles of sin have been removed and we are now freed from that bondage. We are free to choose Christ because with this new heart in the Spirit, He is our greatest desire. There is nothing else that we desire more than the Lord. We are no longer bound by sin, but we have been freed by grace. Grace, grace which effectually changed our desires. Not controlling our decisions, but empowering us to choose that which is now our greatest desire. And this is where the term irresistible comes from in this doctrine. If, if because we have this new heart, Jesus has now become our greatest desire, and all the things that once kept and restrained us from choosing him have now been removed, we can now see the glory of the gospel before us. We can now see the grace and the mercy that God poured out on his son in our place on the cross. And if we can now see the glory of the gospel with eyes that can rightly see what the Lord has done for us, and hear with new ears that hear the gospel in its truth, without hindrance, if now we can see the full beauty of what Jesus gave for us so that we could enter the kingdom of heaven. And there's nothing keeping us from choosing our greatest desire. What else would we freely choose? What other decision would we make? Again, looking back at what Paul said in 2 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians 4, 4 to 6. He said, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. But he continues, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ, our Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Were it not for God shining the light into our hearts, removing the heart of stone, removing the scales from our eyes, and revealing to us the true glory of the gospel, we would sit there in our sin forever. We would never choose God. Without the work of the Spirit to melt the hardened heart of sinners... We would never freely come to Christ. Jesus says again in John 6, 63, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. God monergistically, by his power alone, liberates the sinner and empowers and enables them to choose him after he has changed their heart and removed the shackles of sin. He gives the sinner a new heart that has new desires and new inclinations, a heart that is no longer set against him, but now loves him. And in doing so, the Lord accomplishes all that he intends to accomplish. Coming back to our primary text today, verse 44, Jesus said, No one can come to me unless 
the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And so for those who have been called, Jesus assures that we are his and that we will enjoy the blessings of eternal salvation forever. What a blessed assurance for God's people to know that what is necessary for us to enter the kingdom of heaven, Christ has already accomplished in its totality for us. Once more, Paul says in Romans 8, he said, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called and those whom, he also, or those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Paul, again, reiterating that same promise. That to all those that God has, has called, he will ensure that they are glorified in heaven. Because he accomplishes everything that he intends to accomplish. So as we consider again our, our truth taught for tonight, which was this. It says, all of the elect... That is, those the Lord has predestined to salvation will be effectually called, regenerated, and saved. I want us to, to consider just a few things, a, a, few, a few things that we need to do as Christians in response to this doctrine. Because sometimes we look at these Reformation doctrines, and they can be heavy doctrines, and, and we sometimes don't know what to do with them. They seem heady to us at times. This is a very practical doctrine. And so I want us to consider at least these things and, and, and how we should respond to this doctrine. Number one, we should give thanks. We give thanks to the Lord that he accomplished all that is necessary for us to be saved in Christ. We give thanks to the Lord that he sent his spirit to accomplish that which we could not accomplish within our own heart. That he gave us a new heart that we could not attain or merit on our own. Secondly, we rejoice. We take joy in the fact of knowing that we can rest in Christ. We don't have to work to earn our salvation. We don't have to do check off the list and all the boxes on some list in order to be redeemed. No, that's already been determined and accomplished in Christ. And so we can rest in Christ and rejoice in knowing we don't have to work in order to earn that salvation. Thirdly, we should praise him. We should praise and worship God the Father for knowing us before the foundations of the earth and calling us to himself. We should praise and worship God the Son for coming in the flesh, for entering humanity, for becoming one of us and living perfectly when we couldn't and then dying a death that we couldn't die and raising from the dead in a resurrection that we could not accomplish either. And we should worship and praise God the Spirit who accomplished that process of regeneration in our heart, who is working in and among us here and now at this very moment, who encourages us, who leads us, who teaches us about these wonderful doctrines of grace. And then finally, we should preach. Preach the word, preach of the sovereign grace of God in Jesus Christ. As Christians, this is our, our mission. This is what we've been commissioned to do, to, sh to, to share the gospel to the ends of the earth. We don't know who the elect are. We weren't meant to know who the elect are, but we were commissioned to share God's gospel. 
And if maybe you don't know the Lord tonight, maybe you're not redeemed, maybe you have not been saved, maybe you have not believed in Jesus, then the scriptures call you to repent. Again, we don't know who the elect are. God calls all people to repent. God calls all people to submit to him. I think it was John Stott who, who, who gave it probably maybe one of the best illustrations of this that I, I can remember. He said that when, when we are converted, when we come to Christ, it's like having two different rooms with one doorway. And on one side, you have the redeemed, you have the saved, you have the elect who have already been called and regenerated. And on the other side, you have everyone else who has either not been regenerated yet or are unbelievers. And when God calls you and you walk through that door, as you're walking through that door above it, it says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. God calls everyone to walk through that door. We don't know who will. We'll share the gospel with, all, with everyone. But after we enter the door and we, we, we enter the other side and, and we're among the redeemed and the elect and we, we are in Christ and we've been regenerated and we look back over that same doorway, above that doorway, it says, I have known you from before the foundations of the earth. God has always known that you're his. He determined that you were his. He called you to be his and he did everything necessary to ensure that you would walk through that doorway and spend eternity with him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Sovereign and gracious Father, we are thankful tonight for all that you've accomplished for us in Christ Jesus. God, we're thankful for all that you've done by your spirit in our hearts to redeem and to save God, we are thankful that you have given us new hearts that no longer have enmity towards you, that are no longer set against you, but rather are fully inclined to love you, to obey you. God, we ask tonight that you would bless and, and encourage and help us. That you would help us to see the, 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 the wonderful, blessed assurance that we have in knowing that everything that was necessary for a sinner to be saved, to be redeemed, you accomplished it for us. That you predestined us, that you called us, that you regenerated and justified us, and that you will glorify us. God, we are thankful for all that you've done here at Revolution. I am thankful for this ministry and this church and this congregation. I'm thankful for their pastors and their leaders. I pray that you'd bless the remainder of our worship tonight, that you would be honored and glorified. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.